a foundation. What are the origins of a faith that is held by over two and a half billion people? It all started with a group that decided to live differently, to love intentionally, and to follow Jesus no matter the cost. The earliest disciples were called by Jesus into a movement that would change the world. And he's calling you to do the same. Investigating Jesus, Change Agents, a new series at Stapleton Church. Hey everybody, I'm so glad that you guys are here this morning. Welcome, my name is Matt Wolf. I'm the lead pastor here as we're still passing out the plate. Um, I just wanted to talk about one thing that happened in the life of our church. Linda Schrago, an incredible woman who we love very much, led our women's ministry, has done so many things in our church. She passed away this week. Um, and I just would ask you guys all to, pa- to pray for um, her husband, um, Gary Bell, and their family. Um, Gary was here in the first service, which is great, but we ask you to encourage and pray for them. In the back of the lift here, we have a table, and there's some cards. So if you know them and want to encourage them, pray for them, just fill out a little card and just leave that there, and we'll make sure that we get it to them. If you are interested, we're going to send out all the information on their service. But on Friday, the visitation is from 5 to 7 p.m., and then on Saturday at 1 p.m., there will be a funeral service at Horan and McConaughey um, Funeral Home down on Colorado. Um, so just be praying for them. And in, that, in fact, that's what we're going to do right now. I'm just going to say a prayer. And if you guys would join in with me as we pray for that family. Um, Lord God, what a privilege it was to know Linda. I can think of her smile right now and the, and, and the love that she showed to so many. Um, Lord God, I, I know that I felt that and, and so many others did as well. And we just pray that we'd remember that. And, and we pray that as we grieve, as we mourn this week in, in the sadness that it is losing a friend and a loved one, that we would not grieve like the rest of mankind, that we would know that she is with you right now in paradise, Um, that she has a new body that is not ravaged by cancer, but instead is new and uh, that she can celebrate with you and we can celebrate with her even in the midst of grief. And I just pray that you'd be with uh, Gary, with her daughters, with the whole family, give them comfort, give them love, and, and give them that hope comes only in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for praying and continue to do so. Okay, today we are starting a new mini-series, I'm calling them, uh, as though that we continue to investigate Jesus as we look at the gospel according to Luke. We are looking at how Jesus calls us and sends us to be change agents. Because I don't know about you, but I want my life to matter for something. I want it to have a greater significance I want to change the world as much as I can with my life. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think we all at our hearts say, I want to to matter. I want to have an impact. I want to be something beyond myself and bigger than myself. I want to help change the world. Sometimes life, and as we get older, kind of saps that desire away from us. But I still think at our core, we all want to change the world. But the question is, how do we actually do it? How do we actually do it? Because that is a challenging thing. Now, there's no way in 30 minutes I'm going to tell you how to change the world, but I can tell you how to start, how to start. And that's what we're going to look at today as we look at Jesus, because that's what Jesus actually wants us to do. And as we're investigating Jesus, we're investigating with Luke, who wrote this gospel. And the gospel account, the good news of Jesus that Luke wrote, was actually written by this man, Luke, who was very educated. He was an educated doctor, and he was also a historian. And when he heard about the story of Jesus, when he started to believe, he wanted to investigate it for himself. So he went to uh, the locations, eyewitnesses, he interviewed, he just wanted to talk to people. And then it says that he wrote an orderly account so others could know about what actually happened in the life of Jesus. 
And we have this turn in, in now Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 6, start in verse 12 today. And in this story, he's going to start to teach his disciples, his followers, what it means to follow him and, and more importantly, what it means to go be sent out and change the world. So that's what we're starting in this series and this mini-series called Change Agents as we investigate Jesus together. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn it with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to be there uh, up through verse 26 today. Um, you can follow along on a smartphone, and we'll have uh, the, the main verses up on the screen as well. And what we're going to see today is kind of a two-part big idea that, that shows us how we can begin to be the change agents that God has called us and created us to be, so that we can see the world changed. So the first thing I want you to learn today, the first thing I want you to learn today is that Jesus actually does send us to change the world. Jesus sends us to change the world. Now, I'm using the word us here and because I'm talking about those who are followers of Jesus, or in Jesus' language, those who are disciples. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, this message is for you. Just like Jesus, as we're going to see in this passage, directly taught his disciples, even though there was a crowd around, he kind of looked at his disciples and said, hey, this is for you. In the same way, that's what I'm saying. So I know there's some people here who aren't followers of Jesus or maybe aren't followers yet. You get to just sit back today, okay? There's no obligation. You can just sit back and listen and say, hey, maybe, is this something I want to be a part of? Do I like those Christians? Do I like those followers of Jesus? Or, eh, take it or leave it. Um, Because I hope that you will decide to follow Jesus, but this message isn't for you. For those who have chosen to follow Jesus, Jesus actually doesn't just say, come follow me. He actually says, now go. I'm sending you out to change the world. And that's what he's going to do as he begins to to gather this group of people that are his followers. So would you look with me at at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In it we read, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now this isn't like you spending the night praying when you actually fall asleep, okay? This is Jesus actually praying all night long on a mountainside. Pretty impressive. Verse 13 says, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Okay, so there's a few things I want you to notice here. First, Jesus spent all night praying. This is a really important decision he's about to make, that he wants to spend all night praying and asking God what he should do, thinking about it, praying about it. So he's up on this mountain Spending time with God, as Val talked about, he's on a date with God, right? And he just wants to know what God's will is. He's praying, he's he's calling out to God, and after that time of prayer, he comes down, and now he's going to choose the leaders. Now, notice how it says that there's a lot of disciples. We're not told a number here, but there may have, there was at least 12, right? Because he picks 12, so there was probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who were his followers at this point. We've already seen Jesus call Simon Peter, um, James and and John and Andrew. He's also called this tax collector named Levi, who we know is Matthew. And these guys started to follow him. There was a bunch of others as well. And after thinking and praying about it all night long, he picks 12. So these 12 actually basically are the leaders of the disciples. It's not that the others weren't disciples. In fact, they still continue to follow Jesus. But there was 12 that he picked as leaders that he could continue to pour into because leadership is really important. We think leadership is really important here at this church too. So there's higher expectations for leaders than there are for everyone else because that's what Jesus did. But what's interesting here is he picks these 12 and I think that they're basically the model not only for the rest of the disciples but for us as well, us that are we that are followers of Jesus. What I want you to notice because the word disciple, we know it as follower, a learner. But then he says that they are to go out as apostles. Apostles. Now this is an important word. 
We know the, the word apostle usually because of the 12 apostles. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've heard of the 12 apostles. And that's typically with the capital A. It's these 12 guys here, the capital A apostles, the 12 main guys that were there at the very beginning. But actually the word apostle, when we use it with the lowercase a, means those who are sent out. Those who are sent out. So the followers become the ones sent out. It can also mean emissary or, or an ambassador. They are going out to represent Jesus, to bring his message, to, to bring the love of Jesus to other people. So he's saying, hey, you've been following, now I'm going to send you to change the world. And in the same way, all of us who are followers of Jesus are called, and at some point we will realize it, that we are not just called to follow, but we are called to be sent to other people as well. Jesus sends us to change the world. Um, now, most of us hear that and we kind of freak out and think, mm, there's no way I could do that. I, I can't be a disciple like that. There's no way I could be an apostle. Okay? How could I be sent out and how could I even make any difference at all? I think that's one of the, the trickiest things about being a, a change agent in the world. How can I really change the world? What is it that I can do? Is there anything of significance that I can really do to change the world? And the reality is you can do a lot. And Jesus is calling you and sending you to do a lot. And you can do way more than you think you can. I want to tell you about a man who saved the world. You know who I'm talking about. Vasily Arkhipov. What? You haven't heard of him? He's the hero who saved the world. See, Vasily Arkhipov uh, was a 36-year-old Russian um, submariner on a naval submarine, a, a nuclear submarine during the Cold War. And in 1962, he saved the world. You see, the Soviets had ordered five nuclear submarines to Cuba. They didn't know it when they left. They thought they were just going on a training mission in the Arctic. But all of a sudden, three weeks later, they found themselves right outside of Cuba in the Caribbean. And they had nuclear bombs on, nuclear warheads on these submarines that were the, the type that could blow up a city just like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So a lot of power and damage out of these submarines. Now, <clears throat> they already were thinking this could be war once they got there and realized where they were. And the captain especially was someone who was eager on this submarine, was eager to start a war. And to make matters worse, the submarines had been built for the Arctic, and now they were in the warm Caribbean subtropical temperatures, and their submarines during the day would get up to 120 degrees in a cramped, claustrophobic tube, right? Just imagine that. To make matters worse, they were, in order to get there quicker, they were going on the surface of the water, and it just so happened that a hurricane came. So now this hot metal tube is getting squat, you know, going back and forth and back and forth by the waves. Everybody's nauseous, hot, stressed, and ready for war, right? And they get their orders to go into the U.S. waters just off the coast of Florida. And they go there, and as soon as they enter U.S. territorial waters, turns out that we had been watching them the whole time, <laughs> And a whole bunch of battleships start surrounding this group of submarines. And it's at that point that the U.S. says, hey, we're here. And they start dropping some charges, some depth charges, next to these submarines to scare them a little bit. To, know, to let them know where they are. And as explosions are going, as the heat, as the nausea, as the claustrophobia and the stress of being in these submarines is going on, the captain of one of these submarines decides it's time to go to war. They are being attacked, right? They're being attacked. These depth charges are bombs. So he brings all of his officers together and he says, we're going to war and we're going to destroy these Americans. 
We're going to take out every single ship we can. And even though it means we will likely die, we're going to destroy every single one of them. And that's how World War III started. But it didn't, right? <laughs> we know that. And why? Well, see, Vasily Arkhipov pulled aside his captain and said, could I speak with you for a moment? He pulled him aside and very calmly talked with him and said, have you thought about what's going to happen? He, he reasoned with him and very calmly and peaceably said, hey, maybe we should try talking with them before we destroy them. And that's what they did. The, the submarine went to the surface to show the Americans that they were not there for war. They talked for a little bit, and then the submarine kind of went down to depth and evaded all the ships and left, went back to the Soviet Union, and the war and the crisis was averted. This didn't become public knowledge until about 2002 when some records were released, and the director of the NSA looked at this event, and he said, you know what this event teaches us? It teaches us that a man named Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. And we don't even know his name, right? See, one person can make an enormous difference. Even just one person willing to say, hey, let's, let's be peaceful here. Let, let's calm things down. To talk someone from the brink of doing something terrible. See, one person can make an enormous difference in our world. And I believe that Jesus is calling each one of us and sending us to make a difference in our world. That's what he's sending us to do. So I think in this that we're seeing now, Jesus is shifting these disciples. He's saying, you've been leaders for, or I'm sorry, you've been learners for a while. Now it's time to become leaders. You've been consumers. Now it's time to be contributors. Okay, you've been sitting as a fan in the audience. Now it's time to get on the playing field. And I think he's saying the same thing to us as well. If we are followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying it's time now to go and to be sent to change the world. To change the world. You are change agents. So how do we do it? Maybe you're not a submariner. Okay? Maybe you're not <laughs> next to the Soviet captain that could destroy the world. So how can we make an impact? Well, that's what we're going to begin to look at in this section. Because Jesus goes on to say that if we want to change the world, we've got to do something differently. Um, and I think this is so important. There's this, this quote from, um, I'm sorry, let's go back to the last quote. No, no, that's the right one. Sorry. Kevin's on top of it. I, I'm behind, right? Henry Blackaby said, when you believe that nothing consequential can happen through you, you have said more about your belief in God than a you have indicated about yourself. The truth is that God can do anything he pleases through an ordinary person who is fully dedicated to him. See that? God is saying, I'm sending you to change the world. Do you believe him? Because he wants you to. And that comes to this last point, fully dedicated to him. So this is what's going to happen, okay? Jesus is going to start to teach us. Of course, in 30 minutes, like I said, he can't tell us everything that it takes to change the world, but he's going to tell us the first thing we have to do is change the way we see the world. Okay? We've got to change our mindset, change the way we see everything before we talk about the actions that we actually need to do. So what I want to, you to learn, so our first part of our big idea is that Jesus sends us, Jesus sends us to change the world. And the second part is by changing how we see the world. By changing how we see the world. This is so important. Jesus sends us to change the world by changing how we see the world. And that's what Jesus is going to do. As he begins to teach his disciples, these 12 guys, he said, I've sent you. Now this is how you start to see things differently. And if you think, well, how could that be important at all? Well, it is. 
because you can't change anything unless you're different. It might seem obvious, but people don't realize that our whole world is trying to train us to be like everybody else, to just fit in, look like everybody else, dress like everybody else, talk like everybody else. But if you're just like everybody else, you're not going to make any difference. Jesus wants us to change the way we see the world and interact with the world in turn and how we act in the world. You have to be different. We know this in chemistry, don't we? You might build an awesome volcano for your kid's diagram. You might put the baking soda in there. But until you put the vinegar in, nothing's going to happen, right? But you do and boom, you got a volcano. Okay? You might make some great dough, but it's not going to rise until you put in the yeast. There has to be a change agent, a catalyst in there. We know this on the chemical level. And it happens on the people level as well. If we're just like everybody else, we're not going to change anyone around us. Um, even George Bernard Shaw knew this. He said, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Okay, We need to stop being reasonable like everybody else. It's time to be unreasonable. time to be different if we want to be change agents in the world. Or else everything is just going to keep going the way it is. So that's what Jesus is going to teach. It tells us, Next, in verse 17 through 19, that Jesus came down off the mountain. He'd been praying all night. As soon as he gets down, there's a huge crowd of people looking for him. So it says he went to a level place. It's probably on the mountain somewhere. There's kind of just a flat area. And he begins to, to perform some miracles and to teach. Now, there's a lot of similarities. It's what's going to happen over the next uh, chapter between what Jesus teaches here and what he teaches in the famous message called the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 and through 7. Now, some people think it's the same message. I don't. And the reason is because I'm a preacher. Okay? I preach the same message every Sunday three times. And it's a little different every time. Okay? When I, if I ever go preach somewhere else, it might even be the same message I preach here. I preach it a little bit differently there. Jesus did the same thing. If you track through his life and ministry, he teaches things a little bit differently everywhere he goes. So there's the Sermon on the Mount, his powerful kind of central core message. And here this is maybe this, the, the, the Sermon on the Level Place. So sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plain. A lot of similarities, but I think there's some slight differences that are important as well. And the first thing he does, it says in verse 20, is that he looks at his disciples. Do you see that? He looks at his disciples. There's a whole crowd of people, thousands of people probably, but he looks at his disciples and starts teaching them. That's why I'm doing the same thing this morning. That whole crowd here, just talking to those of you who are already followers of Jesus. And then he begins to go into this section called Blessed Are You. These are often called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. But what's different between this and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is that not only he gives the, the blessed, how, how you are blessed, but then he also says, woes. And that's why I'm going to contrast these four beatitudes with the four woes. So he says, basically, you are blessed by God. You have God's favor on you if this. You have a woe on you, basically God's curse, if this. And the two of them contrast, okay? They go hand in hand. So that's how we're going to look at them today. There's four of them, and the first one is in verse 20, where Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. See that? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And if you jump down to verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Do you see how these contrast each other? All four are going to be like this. Blessed are you who are rich, woe to you, I'm sorry, blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich. Now this is so important for us to see this because he's basically saying everything you think you know is wrong. 
You need to flip the way you see the world. Invert it. Our world tells us that rich people are blessed by God, that they have favor, that all these good things are happening to them. They have it all made. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's wrong. It's the poor. It's the lowly who are blessed by God. Hmm. This should be a very challenging word here. I almost want to just sit here for a while and let us stew on this for the rest of our lives. Okay. This is challenging, right? Especially here, 80238, our zip code here in Stapleton. It's the wealthiest zip code in the entire state. We're the rich. And if you're like, well, I don't live in Stapleton. Okay. We Americans are the richest people the world has ever seen by a long shot. If you don't believe me, go to any third world country. It's immediately, instantaneously true for you. We are the rich. So does this mean, woe to us, we're cursed by God, oh, there's no hope? Does this mean we need to take a vow of poverty and sell everything we have? Maybe. (laughs) No, I I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Because the Bible, if you read it in its entirety, and even Jesus' message in its entirety, is not that poor people have it made, and rich people, bad things are going to happen. Because the Bible is a lot smarter than that, okay? Throughout the Bible, there are rich people who do good and are blessed by God and chosen by God, and there are uh, rich people who are awful and terrible sinners. Okay? There are also poor people who are incredibly blessed by God. There is chosen people, and there are poor people who are terrible and awful. We know this in our own life, right? <laughs> rich or poor, there can be good rich, there can be bad rich, there can be good poor, there can be bad poor. We know this. Jesus knows this too. But what is, he is teaching us is that we need to stop thinking like the world because the world in his century and in our century tells us you should be rich. You should try whatever you can do to get more money to make it higher up on the corporate ladder so you can have a good job that pays well so you can have security and comfort and everything will be taken care of. That's what our world tells us to go after, to be, in a sense, our God. We should go after that God because once you have enough money, then it's like you're saved. You're comfortable, you're secure, everything's taken care of, you don't have to worry anymore. But money, it cannot do that. Money is a terrible God. Because the more money you have, the more you're, wor- you're, you're going to worry about that money. You, you think, okay, if I just get my 401k there, and if I just save up for this, and I save up for that, everything's going to be okay if I have enough retirement. And then, guess what? There's never enough. You're going to keep worrying about your money, and the more you have, the more you worry about it. Money is a terrible God. It's a terrible God. And when you make your life all about your money, you're going to have all the reward already. Okay, that's a mindset that we have to break. We have to stop seeing the world like everyone else does. Instead, if we say, hey, I'm poor, then all my money isn't mine. All that I have isn't mine. It's for me to give to others, to serve others with. That I can't find any comfort in in this. Did you know that you came into this world naked and you're going to leave naked? You ain't taking anything with you. No matter how much money you store up, no matter how much stuff you have, your hearse is not pulling a U-Haul. Right? It's not. So we need to stop thinking that money is going to bring us security and comfort. This is a complete mindset shift because everyone tells us, our world is screaming at us, you need to work harder to make more money. You need to save more money. You need to store more away. No, no, no. We need to start thinking like Jesus. And he said, blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich, who find your trust in riches and money and wealth. Wow, this is a big mindset shift for some of us. Because if you do this, then you're going to say, hey, well, if all the money I have isn't really mine, I'm poor, then I can give more away. I can use all the stuff that I do have to help other people. 
Uh, I can serve people. I can have people stay at my house. I, I can give them food. I can show hospitality, have people over for dinner because it's not mine anyways. And if I lose it, it's okay. There's a market tank. Everybody else is freaking out. I'm okay because it wasn't mine to begin with. It's a complete mindset shift. And if we ever want to make a difference in the world, we have to start thinking that way. Because we should be the most generous people the world has ever seen. We're the richest. We should be the most generous. It's not our money anyways. We should be the most generous people with everything we own. Give and give and give more away. But Jesus gives us a second way that we need to change the way we see the world. In verse 21, he said, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Alternatively, in verse 25, he says, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Interesting. Now, he isn't saying that you should stop eating, that food isn't important. In fact, when he teaches us to pray, he's going to say, give us this day our daily bread. We're supposed to pray to eat. Eating is good. It's helpful. But what he's saying is that food isn't everything. Now, in the first century, to a lot of poor, this was an important word to hear. Like, Sometimes it is hard to get the next meal. For those of us here in the first world, we might not be thinking that way, but we still sometimes make food our God. What's the next restaurant opening up? Ooh, a great new chef. There's some new food I have to try. I've got to go to that restaurant. Do you really? Okay, we, we do this because we're embracing and chasing after more experiences and the best food and, and how can our life be more comfortable. But Jesus is saying, hey, we need to stop thinking that way because if you are well fed now and you eat the best food all the time, that's already the reward you're going to get. You've already gotten it. You just ate it, and now you're going to poop it out. Okay. It's gone. It's interesting, in these Beatitudes, Jesus assumes something that is so important. He assumes that this life is not all there is. Did you pick up on that already? He's saying this life is not all there is. If it is, you should chase after money, you should chase after food, you should chase after experience and all the best things. But if it's not, if there's another life, that even this one is very temporary and short compared to the billions and trillions upon trillions of years that you'll spend in eternity, then what you do now is actually pales in comparison to what's coming. And that's why he said, even if you go hungry now, when you choose to forego the best food, or, or when you do go out to the good restaurant, it's to invite other people and celebrate with them, and celebrate them and give them food, take them out, and then I'm going to go to the homeless shelter and serve at Denver Rescue Mission so I can feed meals to people who really do have hunger. If that's what you're about then your reward is going to be forever in eternity where it says there will be choice meats and choice wine. Did you know that's what's promised in Isaiah? The best meat, the best wine is going to be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, we don't live for what we're going to eat now. We live for what we're going to eat in eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Change the way you see the world. Change the way you see the world. He goes on in, in the second half of verse 21 to say, Blessed are you, who weep now. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. As opposed to verse 25 that says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. See the contrast here? Very clear. Very distinctive. Blessed are you who weep now. Now a lot of us are weeping this week um, as Linda passed away, and I think it's a very important reminder that we do grieve. There is sadness. There is loss. There is hardship. There is suffering in this life. And some of the suffering goes way beyond the, the few months of cancer that Linda has had to struggle, struggle through. But it goes on and on in years. There is weeping. There is grief now. In fact, we are commanded in the book of Romans to weep with those who weep. We don't pretend like everything's good. 
There's suffering, there's struggle, there's hardship now. And we even embrace that weeping and that grief when it comes. But we don't grieve like the rest of mankind. See, when we weep, we know that Linda has a new restored body in eternity. That, that she's going to be able to sing and laugh and dance again and have energy like she didn't have these last few months. That she will be in paradise. That's what Jesus calls it. Paradise. That she will be with the Father where it says is the fullness of joy. See, this life will have struggle and hardship and sadness, but it pales in comparison to the joy that will be revealed at the end. But woe to those who laugh now if you're only seeking after happiness and laughter and all the good things and the best experiences. I only want my kids to experience, this is what we do as parents, I, only, I don't want them to experience sadness and hardship. Okay, no, 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 that's not what life is about. Sometimes we do weep and mourn. We don't hide it from them. We don't only pursue what's great and then post about Instagram about how awesome our life is. It's not all laughs and giggles and happiness and smiles all the time. If that's what your life is and that's all that you're seeking after, you will mourn and weep at the end. Then Jesus gives us a fourth way to change the way we see the world. Verse 22, he said, Blessed are you when people... Did you read this? When people hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. They will call you evil. Rejoice in that day, he says in verse 23. And leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But in verse 26, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So if in the first beatitude he, he said, okay, money shouldn't be your God, food and experience shouldn't be God in the second one, in the third one, happiness and just all these um, laughter shouldn't be your God, this fourth one is that your reputation shouldn't be your God either. The way that people see you. Because that is what we try to do. I want to be respected. I want people to like me. I want people to love me. But Jesus is saying, hey, if you follow me, people will hate you. They will despise you. They will reject you. They will exclude you. We know this is happening. We know people that our professors are losing their jobs um, that, you know, because they are Christians in, in a secular school. That people who are counselors are losing their licenses right now in our country. Even reject your name as evil. Have you ever heard Christians called bigots? Hate-filled hypocrites? Well, we're the hypocrites. We'll, we'll claim that one, you know. But why are they calling us hate-filled? Shouldn't we be love-filled? Well, why is it? Because this is what Jesus told us was going to happen. You know, in our country, 20, 30 years ago, Christians were at the top of the pile. They were the heads of the country clubs, head of the politicians. Everybody was Christian. But in our country, it's become less and less and less Christian. And you guys know this. I mean, that we're getting talked about pretty evilly. You watch any uh, sitcom or, or cartoon or drama, and if there's a Christian character, they're the brunt of the joke. Or they're the, the one who messes up, who is a hypocrite, and evil even. And this is how we're being depicted now. And we should not say, oh my gosh, and go on Twitter and like, oh my gosh, how terrible are people? No, we should expect this because what we're facing in our country pales in comparison to what's happening around the world. Did you know that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world? Not only numerically, but by percentages as well. Christians are hated, they're persecuted, they are killed every day. I think over 100,000 Christians are killed every year because of their faith. We got it easy here. Last year we had a friend of mine, James Ellis. He and his family were missionaries that my church in Nebraska supported. They, we sent 
uh, helped send them to South Sudan. And they came back here and were coming through here because not only was it a war-torn nation, they had to flee the country. But James, when he was in the country, got attacked. And he told a story. You guys, some of you heard it in person. And he was attacked because in his village he was telling people about the good news of Jesus. And if Jesus is Lord, that means all the demons and the witch doctors aren't. Okay? And this meant people were losing their jobs. They hated James and his family. And they eventually waited till they found him alone on the road. They attacked him. They beat him with a tire iron, ran over his head with a bus, left him for dead on the side of the road. He was miraculously found, um, airlifted out of the country, and he escaped and, and somehow recovered. And he, he had a lot of brain trauma, and yet he still has recovered, and he can talk. And it's probably a miracle that he did it all. But he was with you and shared that. And, and his family went back. They're not allowed to go into South Sudan because it's still in civil war. But they went right on the border in Uganda, and that's where they are right now, trying to minister and love to the people of South Sudan who have fled that country. That story is normal in our world. Just because we don't know it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But Jesus told us, expect this. So those of you who are students, expect to be insulted and hated and viewed as haters because you're a follower of Jesus. In your workplace, it's going to be hard. You're going to lose out on promotions and jobs because you're a follower of Jesus. Expect that. It's just going to get worse. Let's be honest. But Jesus promised it was going to happen. Paul said, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Take it to the bank. Jesus said the same thing in John 15. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. There's a promise from Jesus that you will be hated if you truly follow me. We should expect this, and it doesn't mean we go on Twitter and complain about it. And we shouldn't be insulted and hated because we say awful things and we're jerks. Let's put that out there too, okay? I know a lot of Christians throw up the persecution card. No, 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 you're just annoying. We're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about the people who are truly following Jesus, loving their neighbors, doing good. And when you have the persecution come, do you know what Jesus tells you? You shouldn't say like, oh my gosh, I have a bad reputation. I want people to like me. No, Jesus said you should rejoice. You should leap for joy. You should count it uh, as joy that you could be counted among the martyrs and those who suffer for Christ. That's what Jesus says. Change your view of the world. You won't always have a good reputation. But guess what? You will have a reward in heaven. You will be honored in heaven. Change the way you see the world. And I think honestly, until we start seeing the world differently like Jesus taught us to, we're never going to make a difference in the world. If we're just trying to fit in and have people like us and do what everybody else is doing, just climb the corporate ladder like everybody else. No, no, no. But when we do climb the corporate ladder, we give away our money. We're generous with it. And we help other people around us climb up that ladder. Just imagine if we were to do that. Imagine if instead of chasing after the best food, we were to serve food to those in need. To use, when we do have good foods, how can we invite other people to enjoy this with us? What if when you do weep, we know that we have a hope of eternity so that others around us see there's something different in us and it would spark their interest that I want that hope too. How could you find courage in the face of all that suffering? Or they see us and they say, you're rejected, you're insulted, you're hated. How could you rejoice in that? We say it's because I'm worthy to be counted as those who suffer alongside Christ.
Because here's the thing. Jesus put his money where his mouth is. See, when he taught us to do this, he showed us that he would do it as well. That Jesus didn't strive after money. Even though crowds of people flocked around him, he wasn't about money. He wasn't about status or about achieving anything for his own. A lot of people say he was basically homeless. He just ate what people gave him. He didn't go after experience or comfort. He wasn't a comfortable guy at all. He spent all night praying on a mountain. He spent his life going around to the least and the lost, spending time with sinners and those who nobody else would talk to. He loved them. He was not about comfort. And Jesus, too, um, knew what it meant to mourn. Not only did he have friends that died and he wept for them, but he wept at the end, too, because one of his best friends, one of these 12 disciples he chose that day, betrayed him. Someone he spent years with and loved, betrayed him and sold him for a meager amount of money. And Jesus wept that night, tears of blood. All night long that night he wept. And then he went to the cross and he experienced full suffering. It says in the prophets that he is a man of sorrows. And that's what Jesus did. He experienced sorrow and suffering and he knew that he would not only be persecuted, he would not only be hated, and they would not only be insulted, but they would murder him and execute him as a criminal. He was a man of no reputation at the end. Even his own followers, these twelve, abandoned him. And Jesus knew all of that was coming. But it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because Jesus knew you have to see the world differently. That even though it seems like he was defeated, the cross was not the end. And three days later, Jesus, God rose Jesus from the dead. And Jesus proved once and all, once for all, that God flips the world upside down. The cross wasn't the end. There's a resurrection coming. And that's why we too must see the world differently. I heard a story about a woman who was challenged. She became a follower of Jesus and she thought, how am I going to change the world? How is me, this little woman, she was a bagger at the grocery store. She said, how am I going to change the world? But she said, I'm going to. For my six square feet that I am in control of, I'm going to try to change the world. And when people started coming through her line, she started talking with them and loving them. She memorized their names. She got to know about their kids and about their mother-in-laws who were sick. She would ask them, and she got to know people and have discussions, and all of a sudden it started making some problems for her manager because her line was always the longest. Everyone wanted to talk with her because she cared about them and encouraged them and loved them. And years later, after she retired, at her funeral, there wasn't any room in the entire church, standing room only, and people one after another told stories about how incredible this woman was and how they changed, she changed their world. See, whether you're a submariner or, or a bagger at the grocery store, Jesus is calling us to be change agents, to change the world right where we are. But he's saying you're going to have to start seeing the world differently than everyone else if you want to make a difference. So it's time to start. You are not only my followers, but you are now sent out to change the world. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would take up uh, your words as challenging as these beatitudes, these woes are to us. Lord God, I pray that we would stop seeing the world like everybody else does, but we'd start to see it differently and then begin to act differently and then begin to give our life to do something different and make a difference in this world. I pray that each one of us who are followers of Jesus here would feel the call to be sent out to make a difference, to be change agents in our world. And I pray, God, that you would... um, Just empower us as we go out so that we can make a difference, whether it's in our six square feet 
or on a submarine or in a school or, or in a business. Lord God, wherever you have put us, help us to be the change agents so that we could see the world transformed for you. Amen. Okay, you guys are in for a treat today. Um, we're going to have three baptisms. We had one baptism.